I'm Matthew Smith, Vermont Edition producer, and I wanted to let you know that the podcast you're about to listen to has been edited for clarity and brevity. Thanks for listening and enjoy. This is Vermont Edition. I'm Connor Cyrus. Today on the show, we're talking about Alzheimer's disease and other forms of dementia. In Vermont, there are about 13,000 people who have Alzheimer's or some sort of dementia. And the number of people taking care of them is double that, nearly 26,000 people. And by some estimates, that's more than $750 million in unpaid care work. And when it comes to dementia, 80% of people with it have Alzheimer's. But there are signs and symptoms to look out for before one reaches Alzheimer's. Now we're going to turn our attention to a medical expert to get a better understanding of what dementia and Alzheimer's is and what is actually going on in the brain. The most common form of dementia is Alzheimer's, but there are other kinds as well. We'll dive into the different kinds of dementia and the emotional impact it has on caregivers and what they and where they can get support and how they can support how can they find love support for loved ones and themselves. My first guest today. Today is Dr. John Steele Taylor, a neurologist at UVM Medical Center and medical co-director of memory of the memory program. Dr. Taylor, welcome. Uh, good afternoon, Connor. So, Dr. Taylor, I just want to start and get a better understanding of how you got involved in Alzheimer's and dementia research. Uh, sure. You know, it's interesting. I came uh, to this field out of a general training in neurology, and it was about halfway through my training in neurology that. I began to understand that Alzheimer's disease is much more than this sort of static uh, concept of so-called plaques and tangles forming within the brain, but there is a number of different facets of the disease um, and many different fascinating frontiers. It's still to this day, we don't completely understand the uh, the biology of the disease. And so it's always great to be part of a field that's um, both, you know, making an impact on uh, so many people's lives and and that also has so many... Um, you know, breakthroughs uh, yet ahead of us. So I'd like to just have all of us just take a step back and get on the same page. And let's just get an understanding of what the difference is between Alzheimer's and dementia. And before you actually answer that question, why do we talk about the two together? Great. Yeah, they're often used interchangeably, and that's because Alzheimer's disease is, in fact, uh, by far the most common cause of dementia. Uh, In terms of, I guess, the basic definitions here, dementia is not specific to a cause or an etiology. It's a state in which there has been a progressive uh, neurological condition that has progressed to the point of very clearly impacting one's uh, level of independence uh, in their daily life. And the um, the classic degenerative brain conditions that result in de- in dementia uh, occur along a, lo- a long clinical continuum, uh, from mild stages or uh, so-called pre-dementia stages to uh, the sort of the mild, moderate, and severe uh, stages of actual dementia. So Alzheimer's disease is a is a specific disease. It has classically been defined um, by the presence of a couple of different abnormal proteins that may accumulate in the brain. Um, but it's not the only possible cause of dementia. Um, but it is true that they are uh, Alzheimer's and dementia are often used uh, interchangeably. But um, to to be precise, it, it, they are different. And it's my understanding that you have to be 65 years or older to officially have Alzheimer's. What is it about that age of 65 that makes it 
I don't want to say special, but that makes it uh, specific. Well, sure. So I'll qualify that a bit. Um, 65 is an important age cutoff, um, and that is the cutoff between early onset and late onset uh, Alzheimer's disease. So we can have onset of Alzheimer's actually earlier than the age of 65. It's much less common. It's uh, around uh, 10% or less of those um, diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. Um, often there can be certain genetic predispositions or atypical presentations of the condition. Um, when we do see onset uh, younger than the age of 65, that is a particularly devastating sort of scenario because someone can otherwise be in, in the prime of their, uh, of their career. Um, they may have uh, younger children, and it, and it may be uh, more difficult to recognize um, if someone's presenting with these symptoms when they are in their you know 50s or early 60s because we don't classically associate that age you know cohort with having a you know degenerative uh, de condition and so there can sometimes be delays in diagnosis when there is, is early onset but it, the vast majority of people you know will be presenting or developing the condition after the age of 65. You know, that just the aging brain uh, is vulnerable to the accumulation of these sorts of um, degenerative processes. Um, we can talk about, uh, you know, the, the flip side of that, which is brain resilience. Uh, yeah, let's talk things. about brain so, resilience in just a little bit. But before we go there, um, tell us what's going on in the brain. You talked about there being proteins in the brain. But uh, for people that maybe don't understand um, biology, Give us, a, or chemistry, tell us a little bit about that and like what is actually happening in the brain when this memory loss starts to begin. Sure. Uh, so it is true that, you know, the classic model of uh, lots of different neurodegenerative diseases, whether it's Alzheimer's or Parkinson's or Lewy bodies or FTD and beyond, uh, the classic model is that there are, there are abnormal proteins accumulating and spreading within the brain, causing disruption of brain circuits and brain cell function and ultimately... Um, loss of brain cells, but we it's it's not always relevant to be defining these diseases in that manner because um, we don't always have the ability to detect the presence of these specific proteins. So it's an assumption uh, that that's made based on um, sort of the pattern of symptoms that we see. Um, but more broadly speaking, the idea in any sort of degenerative process is that there's some sort of some sort of abnormality that's accumulate that is occurring. Um, it probably actually has been occurring in the background for many years before the symptoms, the earliest symptoms, actually emerge. And uh, just by the nature of how it behaves, is that it, it spreads in a sort of predictable way uh, throughout the brain. These are unfortunately uh, sort of relentlessly progressive um, conditions. The rate at which they progress and the nature in which uh, you know different symptoms uh, may um, manifest is different from one person to the next. In the classic form of Alzheimer's disease, it's um, the memory circuits of the brain that seem to be uh, generally affected earliest on. Um, not to get too technical, but there is an area of the brain that's called the hippocampus. And, it's, and that's in the back of the head, right? Yeah, there's, there's a left and right, and it has sort of the seahorse shape uh, to it. And it's a, it's a very important part of the brain because what it does is, if you think about, um, it, it helps us form what are called episodic memories. That's our sort of recollection of any experience that we're having right now, whether, you know, you and I sitting here talking or the listener maybe driving in their car and uh, listening to this. And so it's it's what it's doing is it's binding together all of the different aspects of that experience that 
are initially being processed in different brain areas, and then they all sort of come together in the hippocampus. And that's the location of where uh, we're experiencing things, the details, for example, the details of the conversation, and sort of the time sequence of events. And so it's binding those all together. And then uh, particularly when we sleep, it actually runs a replay of things, and that helps to consolidate it uh, for storage um, in other parts of the brain so that we can retrieve that later on. Now, uh, this because it's processing kind of space and time and content information, not only can we have, uh, if it's affected, um, uh, less grasp of um, the details of recent events, but um, there can be impairment in terms of navigation um, as well as orientation uh, in time. And so it's not uncommon to have early impairments um, in navigation, getting, getting lost more easily, even in more familiar places, uh, or misplacing items uh, consistently uh, around the home. So now that we have a slight understanding of what's happening with our brains, I want to dive into, are there ways that we can prevent Alzheimer's or maybe even delay Alzheimer's and dementia? Yeah, so that's the flip side of the, of the conversation, because otherwise it sounds a bit grim, right, that we're just kind of helplessly vulnerable to this sort of thing. But um, it's, that's not the case, and it's empowering to know that there is, the, you know, the flip side of this, which is the idea of brain resilience, um, either to prevent the formation of uh, the development of these conditions or to have the ability to withstand uh, the presence of an underlying um, progressive brain condition. And so... Um, when we think about brain or cognitive resilience and its association with dementia prevention or delaying the onset of dementia or delaying the progression from mild stages to uh, later stages, we think about several different domains. Uh, these span things like uh, physical activity, uh, sleep quality, certain, um, certain dietary considerations, social and uh, cognitive activity, as well as attention to uh, the traditional cardiovascular risk factors that you know many people may be familiar with. And you know the, the good news is that there's um, pretty well established evidence that you know perhaps up to 35 to 40 percent of um, you know, cases of dementia may be responsive to modifying certain of these risk factors through, uh, throughout life and engaging in more healthy, uh, sorts of lifestyle factors, and that's that's important. That's that's something that anyone in age, any you know stage of adulthood needs to be um, engaging with. So the number of Vermonters 65 and older with Alzheimer's disease is expected to increase by 30 percent by 2025 to 17,000. We heard from a listener, Jack, who asked, uh, "You need to explain the statistic: 30% increase in Alzheimer's disease in Vermont by 2025. Is that because there's more people getting older, or an increased percentage in all Vermonters over 65?" So, how do we explain this? I mean, what I would consider a dramatic increase, but is what's is it a dramatic to you? Well, just the volumes it's, uh, themselves are, are dramatic, and to have the capacity to appropriately evaluate and manage uh, these individuals, um, you know, that's that's obviously highly concerning. Um, you know, the, the impact on you know the healthcare system, and then the impact on um, you know individuals and, and their caregivers. Um, it it's a it's a bit of a statistical issue, and it is largely due to the fact that we simply have a an aging population. Um, especially with sort of the um, you know the baby boomers uh, sort of being upon us here, uh, it's not that the if you take a you know fixed group of say you know 100,000 
individuals greater than the age of 65. It's not that the um, that it's that it's becoming more common in terms of what's called the incidence or the number of new cases per year. Um, it's actually possible that the actual incidence of dementia may be going down um, in in developed countries because of better ed- things like better education, nutrition, attention to um, healthier lifestyle. Um, so, you know, my understanding is that it's it's largely and simply accounted for by uh, an aging population. And um, Vermont is a state where the rate of increase between you know say now and 2025 or 2020 30 is a lot higher than other states. I now want to bring another person into the conversation. That's Meg Polite. She's a policy and advocacy director for the Vermont chapter of Alzheimer's Association. Her organization educates and supports Vermonters facing Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia, including those living with the disease, as well as caregivers, healthcare professionals, and families. Meg, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So before we get into uh, your role, I just want to hear how you respond to um, the fact that we're going to have 30, a 30% increase in two years of people living with Alzheimer's. Yeah, well, I think as, as Dr. Taylor said, it's extraordinarily worrisome about, you know, how are we going to meet the needs of these people, um, you know, people like Luba, who were, were so clear in that story. And a lot of my work involves speaking with unpaid family, dementia family caregivers, and really understanding the challenges that this places on on families and how you know, other diagnoses obviously also impact the whole family, but in some ways, uh, dementia diagnosis and Alzheimer's diagnosis is even more significant because it is progressive, as Dr. Taylor said. It's changing over the course of time. It's terminal, and and it can be a very long road. Um, so it can be a decade or more than a decade where the level of intensity of support is changing and increasing over that period of time. So, yeah, we need to we need to start to address the systems that we have and and build them out so that we're prepared for this. Now let's learn about who you are and what you do. So you come into people's lives after they get diagnosed with Alzheimer's. What does that look like in terms of how you um, meet these people and these families? Well, actually, I think it should be said they come into my life. That's fair enough. Yeah, my life is, uh, you know, so I work for the Vermont chapter of the Alzheimer's Association, and I tend to interact with people because who better to talk about what's working, what systems are supporting them, or where they're not having their needs met than the actual people who are out there and living through this. So, um, unfortunately, when people first uh, interact with me, it's often with a great deal of frustration and, and anger that you heard in your story, like we can't can't find what we need. We can't pay for what we need. We don't qualify for what we need. Um, and by working with them and listening to them, uh, we're, we're able to kind of turn that around a little bit and start to find the supports um, that can start to build out their capacity um, to maintain the level of integrity and, and well-being they want for their loved one. And at the same time, I, I work to try and work with the state and, and partners like uh, Dr. Tail and Department of Health and, and others to say, how can we look at this systemically? We're seeing a lot of people having a similar issue here. What do we need to do to address this? We got an email from Anne who shared her experience with Alzheimer's. She writes, my dad has been living with Alzheimer's for over seven years. He spent the majority of that time in a memory care facility. When my dad first went into memory care, he called our house so 
so many times, he was often crying and asking when he could come home. I try to visit my dad once a month. We often go for walks, do errands, play basketball in his room. Seeing a parent go through this all in front of you, layer by layer, is so hard. My dad is still there. It has been such an incredibly long many years of this disease. There is a grief at, at each stage. I just want my dad at peace. Thanks for talking about this today. So as we talk about this, what does caregiving look like today? Well, I mean, I, I think caregiving is different for every person because the disease is really dis- different for every person. But the common themes are that, you know, I think uh, Luba used the word unrelenting. Um, it is 24-7. It is people getting up in the night because they lose their sense of time, forgetting how to get from their kitchen to their bedroom in their own house. Um, So the level of care for the caregiver, whether they're doing it themselves or they're trying to figure out how to patch it together, is extraordinarily difficult. And a lot of studies have been done, and basically everything comes up as twice as hard uh, for dementia caregivers as for regular caregivers. It, It costs them twice as much. It has twice as much of an emotional, psychological, financial toll on them. Um, So they are really out there looking for how to augment what they can do to keep their loved ones safe. And I think that's where we look at some of the systems in our state and we just realize we don't have the capacity to meet this need. We have a a very severe workforce crisis right now, as as most states in the nation have. But again, because we have more people who are older, it's touching us harder. So if we don't have direct care workers to cover the beds in a memory clinic – those beds aren't available, and someone has to stay at home past, past the time when they can safely be, be cared for. And if we don't have workers to come into the home to provide respite, then the caregiver isn't taking care of their health that Dr. Taylor talked about. And then the, the generational impact of stress or uh, not exercising, um, the impact of not being able to work because you can't leave your loved one alone. Um, these are really, really challenging issues that people are trying to navigate while they're going through a grief process. Um, it's, many, it's tough. And many are still having to do their full day lives and their jobs uh, because they can't, uh, they can't leave what they're doing. You know, they can't, they, there's no money in this, right? Yeah. And one of the statistics that, that hits me because I'm, I'm, I'm sort of there myself, although my, my father doesn't have dementia, is what we call the sandwich generation. And that's somebody who's caring for a parent and they're caring for children at the same time. So the level of intensity of trying to manage child care and adult care and yourself and your life and potentially work, is, uh, it, it's pretty, pretty overwhelming and, um, and very challenging for individuals. Anne wrote to us and said, Anne from Montpelier wrote to us and said, our family is juggling lots of care for my parents with dementia, uh, personal care, physical therapy, nurses, and more. We are trying to figure out who can help, uh, who can help be our conductor of this symphony. It's incredibly stressful for our family to figure out all the pieces and what is needed next. So Meg, where can people like Anne look for help? This is a question I hear all the time. So I would say the first place to turn is your is your regional area agency on aging. They support all um, Vermonters um, who are older with their needs. And I think the challenge that she's talking about is that the person who really has the need isn't the person with dementia. The needs are created by the person with dementia, but the need is the unpaid family caregiver. They really need some sort of a of a case management system that can help them navigate this. And we hear the lack of that a lot. 
part of that is because we we don't have capacity. Part of it is because a lot of the qualification eligibility criteria are created uh, federally. And people in the middle class, especially those who can't afford to pay for things out of their own pocket, but they don't meet the criteria of Medicaid, Medicare level, are left uh, very much in in a gray area where there's not a there's not a really clear place to go to tell everyone go here and these people can like follow that checklist with you over five, ten, fifteen, twenty, twenty five years as this changes and progresses. So. There's not a clear answer. That's that's one of our challenges. Let's go to Mary in Rochester, New York. Mary, welcome to the show. Hi there. Thank you so much. Um, in the 90s, my mom was in her mid-70s and was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. It was, it was hard. It was very hard on my dad, who was cognitively completely intact but was physically declining. And it was really hard on him. Um, so she saw a geriatric neurologist or psychiatrist at UVM who was wonderful, tested her. Yes, it was Alzheimer's. And he prescribed a particular antidepressant for people over 50. Well, her primary care doctor would not prescribe that medication. He wasn't familiar with it. So as the years went on, um, she was put in an assisted living situation, uh, Mayo, down in Northfield, and it did not have any kind of memory care support. Um, And from there, dad died, and then she was, my brother put her in a private home um, that also didn't have any kind of support whatsoever, although they were very kind to her. I must say, my mom, after she got through the early stages of the disease, was very funny. She was never angry. She was never mad. She was never mean. And she retained an incredible sense of humor. So I was very fortunate uh, to, to have that, you know, in place. So I'm just, it's, it's just hard. It's hard on the family. It, it was so hard on my father. He would just say, "Well, she's she's a little forgetful." Mary, thank you so then, much for for calling and sharing um, that difficult experience you had with your mom. I want to go back to the phones, and I want to talk to Richard and Wes Fairley. Richard, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you very much for taking my call. Um, I've been a caregiver in the past on a Alzheimer's unit in a nursing home. I've had relatives pass away that had Alzheimer's, and I'm in my early 60s. My wife is 59, and I'm wondering what kind of testing a person needs to go to receive to get a diagnosis of Alzheimer's. Richard, thank you so much for that call. Dr. Taylor. Uh, Sure. Well, there's plenty to consider there. I think that we always want to be vigilant and attentive to any possible cognitive changes, Um, especially as we get into 50s and 60s and beyond. And uh, there are, you know, some emerging guidelines in terms of the extent to which that might be incorporated into uh, annual wellness visits with a a primary care provider. Um, It doesn't mean that all cognitive changes that one might experience would be due to a a progressive or degenerative condition. And so it needs to be, um, it needs to be 
communicated so that a um, provider can look for other possible alternative uh, contributions or causes ranging from uh, a, di- a disorder of sleep or certain medications that could be contributing or other underlying medical conditions or certain vitamin or hormonal uh, deficiencies that could be uh, associated with that. So, you know, we, we certainly want to not withhold any even subtle symptoms um, uh, if I want, they're I'm being curious, experienced. If you are um, a caregiver or if you are uh, the child of somebody who you think might um, have symptoms of Alzheimer's or dementia, are there ways that you can talk to their doc? You can talk to their doctor about testing for that. Like, how can people who? Because I think people get too prideful or too proud to maybe want to test themselves. So, what is the role of caregivers in getting their loved ones tested? Sure. Well, um, yeah, there should always be uh, avenues of communication there, so the the concern can be raised. Sometimes. You know, in a small percent of scenarios, uh, someone might be very resistant to the idea that they might be having uh, some changes. Um, but for the most part, people are amenable to some uh, form of evaluation, especially if a you know a trusted you know family member is is raising that concern with them. Uh, the process usually starts with again screening for other possible uh, contributing factors or alternative causes administering some sort of a, you know, cognitive screening test that may, you know, take just a couple of minutes or up to five to ten minutes and potentially at the very least tracking that with time. If it seems that there is a, uh, a clear and uh, persistent and progressive change with cognition, then, um, you know, it just, de- it just depends on the scenario and many, you know, primary care physicians feel very comfortable in terms of um, evaluating that and guiding additional workup. And in other scenarios, it may be appropriate to have them, you know, come and see us uh, over at the memory program. Meg, want to see if you want to weigh in on this? Well, I just, I think it, that's it's a great question, and it is challenging, and and ultimately, it is the patient that that has has the rights. Um, and and I do hear from caregivers sometimes that there's there's frustration because the parent is is reluctant to to kind of take the next step and they're they're feeling the person is is unsafe. But I think it's always important to remember that um, individuals do have rights and protections. And as we create systems to address this, we need to make sure that the individual is absolutely staying in the center of the care that they're receiving and and what is happening to and to and for them. And Dr. Taylor, as we're talking about this, one of the questions that my colleague uh, Nina Kek, who has really been exploring this and um, doing a deep dive with exploring Alzheimer's and what that looks like here in Vermont, wants to know how helpful are brain games for people with Alzheimer's? Well, it's an interesting question. I think that we do want to make sure that we are engaging the brain on a regular basis in uh, various sorts, sorts of intellectual stimulation uh, but, you know, the literature is mixed in terms of true benefits of, you know, specific types of brain games or even comparing one type of brain game uh, to another. My general perspective on this is to um, think about the bigger picture. The brain is, has evolved to be as a social organ. And so it is through uh, structured social interactions or even the leisurely uh, interactions of, um, you know, playing, playing chess uh, with close friends uh, that has a social element to it, that's where really really where we exercise the brain the best. 
Um, I do think that there is likely some value in terms of putting the mind into a state where we are intensely focused um, on, you know, thinking through various types of problem solving or strategizing or, you know, mapping out the pieces on the chessboard, that sort of a thing. Um, but I think that we don't need to feel like we need, we, um, you know, if we don't, you know, play Sudoku or do crossword puzzles every day that we're depriving our brain somehow, most important is to be engaging regularly in, uh, with community and in, in a variety of uh, sort of social scenarios. And it, social being socially isolated, that's like one of the worst things possible for the brain. And on the flip side, uh, social interactions, especially if they have a, a leisurely component or a, a physical uh, activity component, that's, that's ultimately the best way to exercise the brain. So just so I'm clear, game like brain games aren't bad, but they're not as important as being social. Exactly. And I think, you know, we would have to be careful about, you know, there's a difference between sort of, you know, focusing on a, a chess game for five or ten minutes in a sort of intensely sort of focused sort of a uh, concentration sort of a state versus sort of more mindlessly playing various uh, types of brain games repetitively. I don't think that's all that valuable, but I think that putting the the brain on a regular basis into those sorts of states of, of focus is likely of value for, um, you know, a, a number of different reasons. And how, and this might be a silly question, but like how social sh do we want people with Alzheimer's to be? I mean, is there like a number that people should hit? Like, I don't know, like, you know, it's recommended that we walk, you know, 30 minutes a day. Is that similar to how much social time? Well, it's certainly been difficult with COVID, and we may be uh, yet to see the true impact that that's had on sort of the, um, you know, aging adult cohort here in terms of the sort of forced social isolation um, associated with that. So there's no, there's no real prescription in mind, but, you know, I think that at least having regular, um, regular routines or regular structure around that sort of a thing, uh, ideally on a daily basis, at least can be, you know, through phone or, um, you know, video, video sorts of uh, conferencing with friends or family or that sort of a thing. So I think, you know, some sort of routine that's associated with it. I think that routines are also of value, um, uh, but then, you know, with some regularity, but there's no uh, specific prescription in that regard. And Meg, uh, from your perspective, what is the value of social interactions and sports within the work that you do? Yeah, well, I think, um, you know, as Dr. Taylor said, socialization is so important. And what I hear and see a lot of is a lot of isolation. Um, caregivers are just, they're so strung out that their choice is, you know, put someone in front of a television or give them something very mindless to do. Um, and the impact of that is hard. So I will say, you know, in the state, we have programs, and I, I just want people to know there are programs out there. There's programs running right now that we know work, and one of those is the adult daycare program um, where you can go where there's a nurse on site and where there's appropriate social interaction for people with dementia. Our challenges are, going back to that number of 30%, right, of uh, several of them didn't make it through the pandemic because – People couldn't go out, and now they're struggling to come on board and have the funds to have enough staff to really operate at the full level. And so as we're looking at this wave of more people needing them, like here is one example that's good for the unpaid caregiver, good for the person with dementia, good for our workforce. Like let's look at what kinds of structures we need to build out opportunities like that more around the state um, so that everybody can get what they need in an appropriate way. 
I want to go back to the phones, and I want to talk to Trish, who's been waiting patiently. Trish from Brattleboro, welcome to the show. Hi, I'm in my car, so I hope you can hear me. Yes, we can. I have a couple comments. Um, when I hear programs, and they're so substantive and valuable, so I'm grateful for that. But an issue I never hear come up is a diagnosis of sleep apnea. And one of the reasons I want to talk about that is that our father died three days before his 92nd birthday. We had had to put him finally in memory care, um, but and he did not fall. He fell. That's actually he broke his hip. He was on morphine, and he basically just went to sleep. We were sure for many years that he had Alzheimer's and had test after test after test done, and that was because both of his much younger brothers died of Alzheimer's. My father's issues from permanent brain cell damage were because of his sleep apnea. And it's a simple thing to repair and for people to talk about, but it's uncomfortable. And in our culture, Trish, one of the you, best... thank uh, you so much for that. We are running out of time, and I do want... Um, Dr. Taylor, to respond to that. So what do we know about sleep apnea and what um, Trish was telling us? Sure. Uh, a lot of considerations there, um, to put it, I guess, to, to try to be succinct. Uh, certainly, we think that sleep disorders, including sleep apnea, but also disorders related to just what's called sleep hygiene or habits around sleep um, or insufficient sleep time, these are highly prevalent. They're likely under-recognized uh, or underdiagnosed, And it is true that, um, you know, a single or a couple bad nights of sleep, we all know that we are not at our sharpest cognitively. But there can be a cumulative effect of that. And whether it is a cause of dementia on its own or accelerating uh, another underlying process or existing in a sort of vicious cycle with another underlying process, it's... Um, actually during deep sleep where we clear out a lot of these things like the, um, the plaques that might otherwise form. Um, it's, it, it, can be, it can be difficult to know the extent to which it's contributing or whether it's causative, but um, especially if there's concern for sleep apnea, it absolutely needs to be addressed. It will benefit one's um, overall uh, cardiovascular health, their overall mental well-being, and their uh, cognitive longevity. And I think there's some simple questions that can be asked uh, to inquire as to whether there might be a sleep disorder. I do want to read an email uh, from a listener who writes, My mom was diagnosed with Alzheimer's last year. She doesn't want to share this publicly. It's been very difficult for me to navigate this. There are times I think she doesn't remember she has Alzheimer's. How can caregivers navigate someone's privacy request with the emotional and logistical need to share the diagnosis with friends and family? Um, Meg, I'll have you answer that and just tell us what your yeah. thoughts are. So, you know, this is one of the ways that the Alzheimer's Association can help. We do offer caregiver support groups, and this person could go to the group with or without their mom knowing and be talking to other people in the same situation. We also offer a lot of programs for caregivers, um, including things like different kinds of communication strategies, like how can you build your own skills at being able to navigate this with someone whose cognitive uh, process isn't what it used to be, isn't the pattern you used to have as, as a mother-daughter. So 
um, there are a lot of resources available for individuals to try and make the challenging situation they're going through better. And um, my first advice to that person would be join a caregiver support group. Talk to other people. You're not the only one whose parent didn't want to talk about it, didn't remember they had it, was in denial. And um, finding that, that piece of community can be really valuable. And I understand there's a hotline that people can call when um, to discuss this. Uh, tell us about the hotline and what the number is. Right. So the Alzheimer's Association nationally and here in Vermont, we have a 24-7 helpline. The number is 800-272-3900. And it's available around the clock every day of the year. It's a free service with uh, master level clinicians who answer the phone and they provide information to people either living with dementia or their caregivers. So um, they will suggest that you call your local area on agency. They will connect you to local support groups. They will tell you what programs are available. They can also talk you through a crisis. Mom's wandered. We can't get her to come back. Like, you need someone to talk to. Um, That's what they're there for. I will um, also just shout out if you go to alz.org backslash Vermont and scroll down to support groups. I think we have 13 or 14 support groups operating in Vermont, both for people with dementia, people with younger onset Alzheimer's, and for caregivers at different um, stages of this process. So there is some support out here for you. And we will link many of those resources on our website, vermontpublic.org, under this show. And um, something that I really found interesting about this hotline is that it connects you to a person and not an automated machine, and that person is local. Tell us about why that's important. Right. Well, the person is regional. Sorry, regional. The person is regional, but it's always a person and not a machine. And then they're able to do a little bit of the work for the caregiver in terms of looking at their zip code and saying, "Okay, you're calling from Bennington, the Bennington Memory Clinic and this area agency on aging and this adult day or support group are the ones in your community. So but regardless of where people are listening, that happens if you're calling from Florida or Louisiana or anywhere. So it's, it's a very valuable number. And Dr. Taylor, um, for the last 30 seconds, um, just highlight maybe more ways that people can keep their brains healthy to uh, prevent or slow down the effects of Alzheimer's. Sure. Again, the whole sort of multi-domain lifestyle approach um, across diet, sleep, um, cardiovascular risk factors, um, and exercise. But really, I think that the top one for me would be physical exercise of both the aerobic and resistance types. Um, That's going to benefit you on all uh, health fronts and can benefit sleep as well. Don't wait for biomedical science to come up with a cure to this very complicated disease. We all need to, you know, start today uh, in terms of these practices that are known to be of value. I want to, we're going to have to leave it there. I want to thank my guests. We had Dr. Steele Taylor, a neurologist from UVM Medical Center. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Connor. We also had Meg Polite. She's a policy and advocacy director for the Vermont chapter of Alzheimer's Association. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you.